Welcome to the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rapina Pierwall, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Saskatoon. In this episode, Dr. Pierwall welcomes Dr. Ari Bittnan, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto, to discuss cytomegalovirus or CMV. Dr. Pierwall. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Canadian Breakpoint. Today we have Dr. Ari Bittnan, who is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics, University of Toronto, and a staff physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Hospital of Sick Children. His main areas of interest are pediatric HIV, congenital infections, and infections of the central nervous system. He is the director of the Congenital and Perinatal Clinic at SickKids and has been managing children with congenital CMV for many years. Welcome, Dr. Bittman. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So today we're going to talk about an important topic on CMV. And um, so I want to kind of walk through, you know, in general, because this is a podcast that's for many clinicians, so not just infectious disease physicians, but also family doctors, pediatricians, and, and definitely even nurses and pharmacists. So I think being aware of what CMV is and how does it really affect newborns and infants? When we briefly touch on that topic, so we can just introduce the topic of CMV today. Okay, so I mean, I guess in general, um, I, everyone's, uh, if they're medical, they're familiar with CMV, the virus. Um, I think some key things to remember is it's extremely common. Um, so it depends a little bit where you are in the world in terms of seroprevalence. Uh, but in general, by the time people reach adulthood, most people are infected. We can talk a little bit about the prevalence in Canada compared to other places. Uh, but in general, in resource limited settings, the seroprevalence prevalence can be almost 100% by the time you reach adulthood. In resource rich settings like ours, it can be more somewhere between 40 and 70, depending on what country you're in. So extremely common. And most people aren't aware of it because it doesn't cause any symptoms in most cases. Or if it does, it causes a mild nonspecific illness and doesn't really cause any long-term issues. And I guess the focus here today, there's several situations where CMV can cause trouble. One is an immune compromised host, which we're not talking about today. And the other is in the context of an infection in pregnancy and the potential uh, implications of that for the fetus and the child. So I think that's kind of a good place to start. Um, I guess one other thing to say in terms of transmission as an intro. So it's very readily transmitted. It's secreted in, in body secretion. So saliva, urine, breast milk, semen, etc. So all of those um, uh, fluids can, can contain CMV and transmit the virus. So. Perfect. And so um, like you mentioned, obviously, CMV can affect newborns and infants in a certain way. Um, definitely our newborns, that's kind of why we're talking about this today. Um, so in terms of, um, obviously, me being a pediatric infectious disease specialist, I see it a lot as well. And, you know, we see most of them that are, you know, asymptomatic and don't really present with anything. And then, but they can have some long-term complications. Um, and that's probably really pertinent for pediatricians to be aware. So can we maybe touch on just some of the long-term complications that we should be aware of? Sure. So first, maybe just to, before I say that, I think one thing that I think is important to remember is, as you mentioned, most babies are asymptomatic. And if you, if you do, in, in studies that have been prospective, you, if you look at the overall group, 
80% of them never have any problem at all long-term. So it's about a fifth that end up with some kind of long-term sequela. And the most common there is uh, sensor nor hearing loss. Um, people tend to be familiar with the severe end of the spectrum. You know, a baby that's born with microcephaly, uh, cerebral calcifications, they might have chorioretinitis, they might have hearing loss, and then they might have the systemic symptoms as well, like the big liver, big spleen. They might have thrombocytopenia with rash. But really, it's a spectrum ranging from uh, asymptomatic to the very severe end. And the very se severe end is really a small minority. They're tragic cases, but they're a small minority. In terms of the ones that are symptomatic, the more common ones tend to be, you know, mildly to moderately symptomatic. So it might be something as simple as just a a baby with a particular rash and you have low platelets and that's the only manifestation. Um, so quite variable. The other thing to remember is it's non-specific symptoms. And so a, a lot of times it's missed because people don't think about CMV because it's a non-specific manifestation. Like it could be cholestatic jaundice or something like that. And people don't think CMV. So even the symptomatic ones can be missed. Right. Okay. And that leads me on to the next question because now we have some, um some provinces, including Saskatchewan, that were doing universal screening. Um, so screening for CMV, I think, has probably been a, a huge discussion and uh, across probably um, many nations and internationally, there's probably uh, a lot of differences as well. But here in Canada, so we always talk about this universal versus targeted screening. Um, do you want to maybe touch on some of the differences, maybe some of the pros and cons? Because I know Ontario has been doing universal screening for quite a while now. Um, compared to other provinces. And I'm not sure actually in Saskatchewan, this is a very, very fresh topic. We just started uh, getting some of those reports in. And so it's causing some anxiety amongst our clinicians. And so maybe we could, um, you could walk us kind of through, you know, what is, what is the differences between what we're seeing now and what's targeted screening? Sure. So uh, first, of all, I don't know if you might want to come back to this. There, some people bring up the idea of screening in pregnancy, which I personally think is a mistake. So I don't know if you, we can avoid that altogether if you want. But uh, sure. with respect to newborn screening, I think this is what's going to happen eventually everywhere uh, because it's such a common condition and it's hard right. to diagnose and it has the long-term complications. So I think over time, it's going to start to be implemented in more and more places. Targeted mm -hmm. screening... <laughs> in general, basically refers to you, you, if you have a baby that screens positive for hearing loss, uh, then you test them for CMV because CMV is one of the more common causes of hearing loss in, in children. So there's genetic causes and then there's the CMV is, is the most common cause of acquired hearing loss in childhood. So um, that right. would be targeted screening. You, the baby fails their newborn screen uh, you have the confirmatory ABR, and if they are confirmed to have hearing loss, you test them automatically for CMV. So that's targeted. Um, universal is kind of what it says. <laughs> you screen all babies, and then it becomes a question of what modality you use. Right. There's, a, there's advantages and disadvantages to each. Do you want me to go through that? Yeah, so I think maybe just touch on the type of specimen and just, you know, what people, I think more so for us clinicians, it's going to be important kind of walking through when we see the results, knowing what the dried blood spot is actually indicative of and how to follow up that. Um, so we'll touch a little bit on that. But yeah, you can definitely kind of talk about the testing and the, the specimens that are used. Okay, so yeah, so the options for screening, uh, for targeted screening uh, would be you just use the birth dried blood spot 
the advantage of the birthright blood spot is it's collected anyway for metabolic diseases. And so in terms of the infrastructure, it's relatively straightforward because you're just adding another test to a sample that's already being collected. Um, and the filter paper strategy has been, it's, it's been studied and CMB can be detected in it. So that, that's the easiest in terms of, you know, if you wanted to implement something now, right? You, right. Because the infrastructure is there. The downside is that the sensitivity of the dried blood spot is not great. If you look at some of the studies, it talks about up to about 85% sensitivity. I think in reality, it's probably lower than that. Um, okay. It really ranges vastly between study to study, but I would say it's probably more around 50% or so, but don't quote okay. me on a specific number. I think the point, the main sure. point is not is to realize that the sensitivity is, is lowish um, so you're missing cases. The specificity is, is high, but you can still have false positives. And people talk about why that might be. I mean, obviously there's lab false positives that can happen, but also mm -hmm. I think the filter papers can get stacked. And so you could theoretically have contamination between filter papers. So yeah. sometimes you can have false positives. They're not common but they do come up and they do come up in a screening program. And then you have to kind of go back and try and figure out, was this a false positive or not? So it does happen. Right. Um, the ideal specimen really is saliva. Um, the reason it's ideal is it's very highly sensitive, uh, much more sensitive than the dry blood spot. Um, it's easy to collect once you've trained people on how to do it. Um, and so for if you were to implement that, um, it would be relatively straightforward to train people to do it. Um, it's been studied already, um, not a huge amount, but it's been studied on filter paper where people collected on filter paper. So I think it, it's probably the ultimately the best way to go. That would be my preferred strategy for screening uh, yeah. would be the saliva because it's much more sensitive. The one thing with the saliva that people have to be careful of is you don't want to take that sample too close to when the baby breastfed because you can get false positives if mom is shedding. So, so that's one caveat that needs to be kept in mind. Um, and then the other obvious aspect is if you were to go that route, you have to have that the whole setup for that. So everyone has to be trained on collection. You have to have the mechanism for transporting all these samples to the lab that's going to be doing the assays and and the, have the assay set up. So it's more of a upfront undertaking to, to establish that compared right. to the dry blood spot. Um, okay. um, the third option is urine. And I think urine is not a good strategy for screening because it's way too messy. You'll get too many cases where it's contaminated with stool and it's, it's hard to do that on a universal basis. It's a great test and it is the test you should probably use to confirm congenital CMV, but but not as a screening. So ultimately I think saliva is the way to go, but as a starting point, I think dried blood spot is good. Um, yeah, I think that's okay. how I would put it, yeah. Yeah, and so now, so lately, I guess in my last uh, few weeks of call here, because we introduced the universal screening. So uh, it's created a huge, you know, um, almost like a lot of questions have come out because they'll see this new result on this dried blood spot. Um, and I'll kind of walk through what we're doing here in Saskatchewan, but I think in general, you guys have been in Ontario been doing it much longer. And so I guess, what are the kind of next steps? Like we talked about urine being the confirmatory and we know, and most people know it with congenital CMV, 
that that urine sample in the first 21 days um, is a confirmatory sample. So is that kind of what you guys are doing when you're seeing these results and, and kind of what's the steps that clinicians should be aware of? Yeah, so if we if we get a positive report, so uh, I mean, I, I don't know if we can talk about the infrastructure and the personnel if you want, um, mm -hmm. or do you just want to touch about on the test right now? Yeah, I think in general, probably the test, because okay. that would be kind of what like other sure. physicians would be ordering or seeing. Yeah. So I think automatically you need to confirm it. I think as a first step, you do the urine to confirm the infection. And, you know, surprisingly, um, you will find sometimes that uh, the screen, the dry blood spot dinged positive and the urine is negative, And that causes a little bit of yeah. consternation and confusion, but it, it does happen. Um, if it's positive, it's easy. You've confirmed the diagnosis and then you go on to do the workup that you kind of have decided upon. Uh, that should yeah. be protocolized, um, and that's straightforward. If if the urine is negative, um, we've kind of gone back to the dry blood spot and repeated the testing, um, right. and also repeated the urine. And sometimes we've sent serology. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes it's it's helpful to do that because then you can. So, for example, if you had a dry blood spot that dinged positive, and then your urine is negative, you repeat the urine again, it's again and negative again, and CMV serology is negative, then you sort of say, oh, this is a false positive for sure, right? Okay. Uh, you might have some other scenarios where it ends up being equivocal, right, where your serology is yeah. reactive. I mean, that could be maternal antibody that can get complicated, but if the urine is negative, it sort of argues against it being a real infection. Yeah, so, no, that's fair, but, yeah. Yeah, we had one of those actually, and so had to. So something I didn't, I think, um, realize uh, was that if there's premature infants that you're dealing with, they would actually have two newborn yes. screens. Yes. And so that caused a lot of bit of anxiety last week uh, because we had a case where, you know, we had to repeat or we didn't have the newborn screen implemented, the universal CMV screen on the first, when the baby was first born. And then three weeks later when it was redone or closer to, yeah, so probably six weeks later when it was done, now we have the universal screen on the, on uh, the CMV screen on the, uh, on the newborn screen. So now we have this positive, but we've never done it before. So obviously we just went back to the previous dried blood spot and reran it. But I think that creates a little bit of, uh, I actually probably didn't even uh, think about outlining that when we were coming up with our protocol, uh, because it was something that just didn't come across that, oh, it can actually be positive later on. So some of the hurdles that we're facing now, and, and with anything you implement. <laughs> yeah, I think they usually do that second sample at three weeks. If it's done at three weeks and it's positive, it's still, I mean, it's right on the border, obviously, but, but it's, it's probably congenital, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, weeks it becomes much more messy. Yeah, no, that's fair. So yeah, so here in Saskatchewan, currently what we're doing is we obviously are, have the newborn screen comes back. Some of the times if they're in the NICU, they'll still be in hospital, obviously. And then if some of them get discharged, that's usually the harder part because now you have to locate the family and, and let them know about the newborn screen because it gets, comes back a few days later after they've already been discharged from the hospital. Um, and then we have a genetics team, like a genetics resource center, who once that comes up positive, they will actually reach out to the family and, and get that urine sent mm -hmm. 
for the confirmatory and ideally within that first 21 days. So that's easier for us as infectious disease physicians to say, yes, this is confirmatory or not, and this is congenital versus not acquired. Um, and then after that, the steps start with risk stratification. And so after the, if the CMV urine comes back positive, then, then audiology is a huge component of that, like we just talked about, because I think as clinicians, that makes a huge difference for us, especially in these isolated central neural hearing loss and um, cases where, you know, you're a little bit conflicted um, as terms of, I think the data is a bit conflicted as to what to do in those cases. Obviously, the severe cases are simpler to manage because they're more uh, black and white. Um, and then we, then we get involved from infectious diseases and we kind of go through the process of risk stratifying as mild, moderate, severe, or asymptomatic, central nerve hearing loss or not, and then come up with our management plan and then and then the long-term follow-up. So I would assume kind of a similar process maybe in Ontario, or is it? Um, so the way it works, different? I mean, obvi Ontario obviously is a much larger population and much, so, but-, but Definitely. The way it's structured is there's five nurse practitioners, uh, basically based on region, you know, where the pediatric mm -hmm. hospitals are. And so those, each of those nurse practitioners will be the one notified about the result in their region. And then they would be the ones to reach out to the family and do what you said the genetics people do, where they disclose that initial diagnosis, field initial questions, and then, and then arrange for their follow-up uh, wherever that needs to be. So the way we've structured it is babies that are asymptomatic go to certain pediatricians. So we identified certain pediatricians in, um, in, in the regions that would, that agreed to take on this role, uh, because there's also some paperwork in terms of follow-up that they need to do, but they've agreed to take on this role, do the initial workup uh, with ID as kind of a backup if they have any concerns. The ones that are symptomatic come automatically to ID. Okay. So ID, okay. the ones that are initially symptomatic, as well as the ones where the pediatrician had some questions, like let's say, for example, the head ultrasound so showed some subtle finding and they weren't sure what to do with it, then they would consult with us. So there's a group of pediatricians, a group of uh, ID docs that would see the kids, do a standardized workup. Our standardized workup is kind of what you'd expect. It's a CBC, liver function tests, head ultrasound, audiology. Ophthalmology was routine. We can talk a little bit about that because we've kind of gone through a two-year data and we've kind of modified mm -hmm. what we're doing so we could talk about that. That's our basic workup. And then we go from there. MRIs very selectively, uh, mostly it's head ultrasound. Okay. Yeah. And, then, and then once they're in, then the decisions on treatment would be ID. So ID would make decisions on the treatment. And if they're being treated, we would follow them closely. Um, and whereas the ones that are not being treated would be followed by the pediatricians and then they're followed. There's a standardized follow-up with some forms that you fill out at particular times and submit those to, uh, the, the NSO, the newborn screening uh, program. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah, definitely like, uh, well-structured. Um, so hopefully yeah. we'll get to that too in Saskatchewan because, because currently yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's we don't, you need to have an evaluation of it, right? So you need to yeah. really. Like how many people are you testing? Are you missing any? And then how many of those that you test positive are actually seen? And like, there's all these factors in terms of evaluating the program that you really need to put in place. Yeah. 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 And I think that's kind of where the next steps are for us where, because we're so brand new at introducing it. So we're going to have to look at definitely our data 
um, in terms of how many positives came out of how many got tested, et cetera. And so, um, so definitely area for room for research always with DMV. Yep. Um, <laughs> perfect. So, um, yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about the follow-up? Cause there is a lot of pediatricians that do tune into this, um, podcast. And so, I mean, there is a Canadian pediatric society, um, statement that you've obviously uh, been involved in and uh, written for us. And so I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things. Like, I mean, I think some of the, the main developmental follow-ups are, are quite similar to other congenital infections. Um, but some of the specific ones, like in terms of the ophthalmology follow-up, um, and also I do remember that there's some enamel issues, and so there's a question about dental follow-up. So I'm not sure if those are some things that actually are being implemented, or there's more studies around that. So maybe we can touch on that. Okay. Yeah. So I think in terms of the development, um, it really depends on the case, and I think this the pediatrician can kind of make that call if they're asymptomatic and completely well, whether they're completely well. I mean, I think. Actually, it's kind of uh, one of the disadvantages of, of a saliva screening based. I'm kind of re- going back a little bit, but one of the disadvantages mm-hmm. you're picking up all the cases, yeah. right? So you're picking up a lot of babies who, the most of them, will never have anything, right. and so to some extent you're medicalizing those kids, right? You're and and parents, some parents are going to get more mm-hmm. anxious than others, but you are medicalizing them. So that's kind of, it just ties into the follow-up. But, but if you have one of these asymptomatic kids, it seems completely normal, then you keep it in the back of your mind and you do your routine pediatric follow-up and assess them as you would normally. I think if they've got symptoms or if they're, they're showing some kind of signs, you can follow them a little more closely. The eyes, um, what we found is that very few babies had eye manifestations. Um, Certainly, if they're asymptomatic, we have none. Um, and the exam is actually uncomfortable. Like if you okay. do a full no. ophthalmologic exam where they, you know, you know, open the eye and it's not comfortable. So we've kind of modified that where we're not automatically doing eye exams at all and everyone. Okay. So uh, that's something that as our, the ophthalmologist in Ontario could maybe uh, connect with your, your group and, and talk about that because... It's, yeah. it's a rare manifestation. And in general, most of when we do find something, it's usually quiet, like it's a scar. Um, so they don't yeah. necessarily even need follow-up. And so it would be selective based on ophthalmology. The big thing is the hearing, obviously. They need to have very close follow-up for the hearing. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of what I would suggest. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely. I think we're also fine tuning a little bit of that process because even for decision-making, I mean, the hearing is so important. Like when you think about whether you're going to start and then, and then one comment to bring up is that this is actually progressive hearing loss. And so that's why we need to make sure that we're having routine kind of follow-up and uh, for the babies. And so uh, just to like kind of mention, which is a little bit different than some of our other congenital infections, because um, usually you can, I mean, I'm sure there are like, we're seeing a lot of syphilis out here and, you know, so they can have, they can also have hearing loss, but usually as a result of like already in utero transmission. And so they present with that. So I think that's something that's quite important because, you know, it's almost, you don't want to give parents false reassurance either, um, but the hearing is now normal, but you know, I think counseling is a huge component of this. And, and there is a little bit more anxiety as I'm doing these follow-ups with parents because 
it's they're anxious because you know CMV was never and moms will usually remember that they had a bit of a cold during pregnancy and that's really it so they're a little bit shocked to hear that that could have led to this type of transmission um so yeah so it's definitely yeah congenital CMV I think is very fascinating uh, probably why you're why you're interested in it right yeah it's complicated <laughs> it's, it's much more complicated and nuanced than uh than some other conditions so so yeah, yeah. so why don't we i guess to kind of i think we talked a lot about you know what cmv is what the screening is and i think as different provinces are going to start doing some more universal screening i think some of that remembering when to test for cmv is going to go away because it's going to be obviously a natural process um, I think you did mention some indications for us for so for provinces that are not currently doing universal screening. Uh, we talked about like the hearing loss component. Um, uh, are there some other indications that kind of are yeah. clear cut indications that we should yeah. share? I mean, I think I think the key thing is just to remember that congenital CMB is common. Like it's one in, in Canada, it's probably around one in 200 babies. And so just any baby that has some kind of nonspecific manifestation, I can go through those in a second, CMV should be on your differential diagnosis. That doesn't mean that you're going to test every single one of them, but just have it in the back of your mind, because there's been studies showing that a lot of symptomatic babies are missed because people just don't think of it. Because once you think of it, it's easy to diagnose. You just send a urine and you're done. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the tough one for me is IUGR because IUGR is so nonspecific and I don't think that people should automatically send a urine CMV on every baby with IUGR. Um, right. but I think you do need to ask yourself, do I have an explanation for the IUGR? Um, and if you don't, you, you should at least think about doing the test because it's an easy test to do. It's not that expensive and you're making an important diagnosis. Um, I think if you have a petechial rash, if you have liver dysfunction, again, it's in the differential diagnosis. If it's more yeah. severe, then I think it becomes more obvious. You have a baby with microcephaly, it's clearly in the differential diagnosis. But it's the more subtle things like the, the rash, the liver, um, and the IUGR. Those would be the, the three where people might not think of CMV that they should. The right. hearing is, is kind of obvious. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I've sometimes encountered, like we talked about a little bit, the direct uh, or the conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, because that's odd to have, you know, right. outside of like biliary atresia and those kind of conditions. And so um, something I've seen in my clinical practice where, you know, that sometimes gets overlooked um, because we're just not familiar with having direct hyperbilirubinemia in pediatrics. We always think about jaundice and we think about indirect, right? And so most conditions cause that, but I think it's something to remember as pediatricians as well, um, for sure. So I think to, so much, such good information for us, because I think it's important, um, like CMD is always changing. Like I, I remember as a, as a fellow and, you know, even as a resident, things were really different and we didn't, um, you know, there wasn't ever like clear cut guidelines, even with the CPS statement coming out, I think that was a huge help because now we have, you know, an outline of something that people can look to. Guidelines are always helpful in that way. Yeah. Um, and so why don't we touch on some newer trials? Because I, I don't know how familiar or how much you want to talk about those, but yeah. what's new, like in the CMV world? Like, what are we looking at in the next few years here? 
Is there a lot of changes? Well, if you want to be optimistic, <laughs> I, th- I, I think, uh, you know, the, there's been two, two vaccine, published vaccine studies that okay. were not very efficacious. Um, like they did, they provided some degree of protection, but really nothing, nothing that would lead to a vaccine being licensed. licensed. There are lots of vaccine uh, I guess what uh, possibilities moving forward, including mRNA ones. Um, And so I think that's probably the the biggest thing that might come about. It's going to take time. It's not going to be like COVID where they develop a vaccine urgently in a year. It's going to take time to do. But I mean, if you could develop a vaccine, um, a preventive vaccine, that would obviously be amazing. Um, Yeah. Biggest challenge there, um, we know, and this is another fact that people don't understand, is that most congenital CMV is a consequence of non-primary CMV infection in pregnancy. So most people think, oh, I, if I'm seropositive, I don't need to worry. I, my baby won't have congenital CMV, and it's not correct um, right. because there's been there's good data that does infection with second strains or uh, uh, can cause congenital CMV and maybe in some cases reactivation of latent virus, but probably more often it's infection with different strains. And so if you have, if natural infection doesn't protect you from subsequent infection with new strains, it just tells you that a vaccine isn't going to be easy. Um, But that would be kind of ultimately the best, the best uh, new thing. I think uh, there's not a lot of stuff there. There's relatively recent stuff on management in pregnancy. If you diagnose primary infection, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to talk about that too much. <laughs> um, I think that things, there's questions that, you know, that we throw about between us, you know, uh, as colleagues, Jason and me and others. Um, yeah. What do you do if you make the diagnosis when the baby is three months old, right? As opposed right. to the neonate. Um, and what do you do is six months really the right duration? Like that yeah. was the six months was made up, right? They just decided six yeah. months, um, for yeah. no, and, and I've, I, you know, I've done this for a long time. So I've had kids that have had normal hearing. They've gotten their six months, they've been normal. And then at three, they've got hearing loss. So even the six month doesn't okay. prevent you from losing the hearing later, granted it gets you through that critical phase where you're developing speech and all that. So it's, it's not that it's not a benefit, but it's, it doesn't prevent subsequent hearing loss necessarily. So is six months, the right duration, should we go 12 months? Um, so I think those are the two, for me, the big ID related questions, uh, that need yeah. to be answered. And I'm not sure how quickly they will be answered. There is also the question of isolated hearing loss. Mm-hmm. I've never understood this dilemma. I, um, basically, people have decided that um, there's not evidence for treating isolated hearing loss, and I, I've and and there's different opinions on this. I granted, of course, but I've yeah. never understood that. And the reason I've never understood that is the main benefit that we've shown with medical therapy is that you prevent further hearing loss. So if you have a child who's got, let's say, moderate hearing loss on one side and normal hearing on the other side and they have no other manifestations, yeah, why yeah. would you not treat them? Like, so I generally treat those kids, um, but right. not everyone does. Not everyone does. Um, at the very least, I think it's one of those things that you need to discuss with the family. 
you know, the yeah, pros. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't think there's a ton that I'm aware of beyond that, but uh, those are my big questions. Okay. Yeah. And I, I yeah, and I think um, there were a few kind of recently uh, like waiting publications. So obviously there's like some trials on clinic uh, that I've seen come through in terms of how long, like when to start, like when is it, you know, that three month is if you miss that month window, yep. do we now go ahead and treat? And I guess it's still again, risk first benefit because all of this, you know, these numbers and these like 21 days, even it's a very quick turnaround time. Right. Yep. So to diagnosis. So, and, and I always kind of question that clinically too, like what's the difference between 21 and 28, you know, like, why would I not see them 28 and 50, right? Like why, like, you know, they still have a key part of their development that we have to get through. And so if they do progressively develop hearing loss and we didn't act on it now, that's a little bit unsettling, I think, as an infectious disease physician, because it's one of those things that it's not as clear and you have to think with your level of experience, you probably feel like you can make the decision a bit better at times because you've seen, you know, the long-term outcomes of it. So, I mean, the way I approach the ones that are over, I mean, once they get to six months, I, I it's too late, yeah. but, but if, if they're kind of in that in between one and let's say four, four pushing at five, but let's say one to four months, if they yeah. come to your attention at that point um, and they've got, some manifestation so they probably have some hearing loss uh, with or without something else i have a discussion with the parents about the pros and cons and i explain that there's no we don't have great data for this there's only some case series in terms of starting Mm -hmm. treatment but i i've treated some of those kids um and 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 actually when you start later uh, my experience has been as you run into less problems with toxicity um uh, than if you start them as neonates. So, you know, in terms of tolerability, it's, it's, it's usually better. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think um, there's times when definitely, I think the toxicity is the part that's, uh, you know, always the limiting factor. And so you always, you know, you get to this one month mark being on GAN, cyclovir, Valgan, and and that's it. You're like bone marrow suppression. And now you're just like chasing numbers almost, it feels, because you're just running, you know, and, and they also go through, like you said, so like a lot of them are going to hit the physiological nadir for anemia, let's say. And then it's confounding whether it was, you know, did I add to this to accentuate it? And so, yeah, so definitely. But yeah, so I think that was um, pretty much what I wanted to discuss today in terms of CMV and whether it's, uh, uh, I feel like you're going to be, you, I may reach out to you again to have kind of follow-up questions that will come around, come around, especially as we're implementing this universal screening. I think, you know, having guidance from other provinces is, is important because people have done it a little bit longer than us. We're, we're going to run into some hurdles here. And so just having an overview, I think for us, was um, important. And I think a lot of other provinces and other clinicians will definitely benefit uh, from listening to this talk. So I really appreciate it, Dr. Rittenen, uh, for taking the time to come on the podcast. And the Canadian Breakpoint uh, is definitely a new, a new initiative, um, you know, to bring out ID topics, bring out general pediatric topics as well that are related to ID um, for microbiologists. So we discuss a lot of different um, things and now we're on Spotify as well so it's a little bit easier to listen to um, so yeah so uh, thank you again and, okay, uh, can I say we one more thing? 
Yeah, of course. So, so the other the other part of this that has really been uh, as and I'll generalize uh, the healthcare profession in general, we've yeah. done we've done a terrible job on prevention. Like the number of times you see, uh, you know, a mom coming in with a baby with congenital CMV and nobody told them anything about simple things to reduce risk. Um, you know, simple hygiene things like hand washing, you know, don't pick up the toddler's pacifier that fell on the sidewalk and stick it in your mouth before giving it back to the toddler. Um, you know, washing your hands after you change the diaper when you have a toddler and now you have a baby. Um, those kind of very simple things. And there's actually randomized trials showing that doing those basic things um, reduces the risk. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's something that we could improve on um, as, as in general. That, that would be one other thing. Yeah. No, and that's actually a very, very important topic. I mean, whenever we're talking about congenital infections, I think the first step to all of this is prevention, right? Because these can be prevented. Um, and so a lot of them, like we can, we can implement these types of uh, clinical, you know, practices or day-to-day uh, -day practices, sorry, um, in their, <clears throat> in parents' lives to like make sure that they're even awareness, I think, is yeah. crucial, right? Because with CMV, it's, you know, it's just a virus and that's what it sounds like to everybody. But actually, I don't think that until you start seeing more and more of it and the long-term of outcomes in newborns i think parents also aren't just aware of it right and right. so i think um you know these are maybe with uh, discussions we should have with our maternity like obs and gynae and family um, colleagues and family doctors yeah to counsel early on like this is really important just like how we counsel for toxoplasmosis like you know don't have you know not going close to cat litter and uh, changing that out and you know really implementing just day-to-day -day practices because this is preventable for sure yeah um and and that also leads on to actually even afterwards you know parents are asking even if they're you know it, like if there is viral shedding how long are we shedding for in the baby some of the some of these uh infants that we're managing that don't get started on treatment they go into group homes and group care and so there's always it's probably another uh, discussion for another time, but <laughs> you, get, you get the questions from, uh, you know, the mom will say, well, I have a friend who's pregnant and can we go over and visit and all this, these kind of things. And I try and reassure them, but yeah, it's because uh, the really transmission, if you adhere to simple hand hygiene, it's really. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, that's great. Awesome. Um, any other kind of last words on CMV that uh, you want no. us to know? Oh, there's, there's tons, but that, that's <laughs> um, happy to do this again. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, it, like it, you reach out if you want, reach out to the program, uh, you know, I'm sure they'd be happy to share the various forms and protocols and all that. If that's helpful, you, maybe you have your own, but, yeah. uh, but if not. Yeah. No, very helpful. Yeah. And I think for other provinces too, right? Like when they are going through this process, knowing that Ontario has done this for a long time, much longer time than any of us have and also with universal screening and and now Saskatchewan be on board so I think other provinces as they as they yeah. implement these protocols I think it's really important and you know one day being having more of a standardized approach you know in, in certain settings and obviously it's a little bit different when you have different populations and provinces are you know managed differently because healthcare provincial healthcare is um has a lot of networks uh, within it so obviously um, maybe everything won't, couldn't be standards, but I think overall 
like universal screening. Um, it's either we, you know, it's good to have those discussions with other provinces. Are we going to be doing this or not? Um, yeah. In terms of follow-up, because also it, I was thinking the other day, you know, you could have a, a child that's born here who gets the universal screen, but then parents move, um, you know, in the interim, and then and then it becomes a little bit of a challenge to interpret that and what are the next steps, right? And so I think it's something to be to understand that it's coming out there now and then maybe other provinces will be tagging along with uh, universal screening. Awesome. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Dr. Bittenen. Thank you, Dr. Pierwall and Dr. Bittenen. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. You can also find us now on LinkedIn. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint.